0: And welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got tons to cram in in our time together. I will be reflecting on current, it's becoming a cliche to say seismic events, but um, they are really, uh, if you step back and reflect on some of the things that are going on. I'm, not, I'm referring to Britain, not Ukraine. Uh, at the moment, although there are connections. And then, yeah, oh, God, brilliant questions. We're now getting a bit of a debate going about the merits or otherwise of co-payments as a way of funding public services and perhaps empowering users. That's a red-hot debate, all kinds of other things as well. So so they're coming up. But if it's okay with you in a minute, I'm going to reflect on, you know, just step back. He broke the rules. He set the rules in the biggest national emergency since 1945 and he lied about breaking those rules. You know who I'm talking about, you know. Anyway, uh, before all of that, just a a quick word to say, please do subscribe because then you get it automatically. The podcast, as I said last week, I kind of was excited by the image which came into my head as I spoke. In the olden days, we all used to get excited, didn't we, when a newspaper arrived on the doormat or whatever, um, I used to run down. I used to get three newspapers delivered. Well, if you subscribe, this just arrives by magic. And it's like the olden days of newspapers. If you could leave a review, only if you like it and it's good, because that means... Loads of others get access to it. As I've said before, I don't understand how or why, but they do. So please do. That would be fantastic. Now onto a confession from me. I thought as we're in that sort of kind of spiritual period, you know, I would make a confession. Now, the truth is about me. I kind of despair most of the time about uh, politics and especially England and politics and the relationship between the two. I despair. I get angry. But as a journalist, I've always avoided... Conveying much of that because I think, to be honest, it's boring. You know, so what if I'm angry? You know, oh, yeah, bloody hell, oh, yeah, you know, oh God. So, uh, so as a journalist, I, I kind of do something different, which is try to make sense of it all—the darkness, the absurdity, you know, and and all the rest of it. And that's what we try and do in this podcast. For new listeners, uh, we try and make sense of the madness um, because there are always deep roots. It's one of the things I think a BBC political editor needs to do, make sense of things. Don't just report them, root it, and have a range of references beyond, incidentally, 1997 and all the rest of it. But having said all that, God, I can't hide my anger and despair, really. You see, because because England is largely, most of the time, a kind of one-party state ruled by the Conservative Party... Much is at stake in terms of what form that Conservative Party takes. I know the reasons why, and we'll talk about that. We'll do our normal thing of explaining. But God, it makes me angry that you have minister after minister saying, you know, let's move on. Of course, oh, yeah, you know, it wasn't – there were misjudgments made two years ago in a birthday cake. But let's move on. Again, I say – if you step back a moment, Boris Johnson set the rules, broke the rules and lied about doing so. And I'm afraid, and I I can understand the reasons, if I were a Tory MP, I would probably be tempted to stick with him because the other options in terms of the electoral implications may well be worse. When you have that situation, a lawmaker breaking the law, it's over. And not just because, you know, they're pretending they think it's the same, these MPs, as a speeding fine. It isn't. Laws set, as I say, in the midst of a national emergency, fully understood and adhered to by most people, were broken. Now to some extent, and here I'm going to be the, you know, trying to make sense of it all bit but I promise you, you'll get more of me being cross and angry and fuming and all the rest of it, just as a one-off special. I can sort of understand how some of it happened. Number 10 Downing Street is almost a kind of place of ambiguous weirdness where a prime minister lives and works. And there are moments where unquestionably drink kind of occasions, alcohol fueled occasions are work I think I've cited it before once or twice a year the uh you know whoever was prime minister would host drinks for political journalists in the garden in in the summer wine was served you know and I know every single person in number 10 who has to go to these things regards it absolutely as work and not some kind of fun party really hard work because you have to watch what you say you don't want to give a news story out in a sort of drunken eruption of candor. So there is an ambiguity. And someone as casual as Boris Johnson would not have reflected on the dangers of that ambiguity. Um, So I think that's part of the explanation. I don't think he sat there uh, with his more partying, loving partner. And said, right, these bloody rules, uh, you know, forget it. We don't have to keep to the damn thing. No one will ever know. Let's just party away. As I've said on this podcast before, I don't think he's a great party fan. He's a performer and he likes dressing up as a, uh, you know, what's the latest kind of dressing up thing or maybe as a soldier or, you know, as a nursing assistant and all the rest of it. But being himself at a party, I don't think he likes. So they didn't sit there and do that. Uh, let uh, break all the rules, no one will find out. and all that. that probably didn't happen. However, there was endless parties, some of which he attended, some of which he didn't. But those who hosted those other parties would have done so in the full knowledge that he didn't mind. Because if he did mind, they'd have got sacked and they weren't going to risk that, you know, the party before the Duke's funeral and all these other things. And so, the sequence is damning and the most damning element is uh, his lying about it because, <laughs> you know, this thing about he's, he's going to say, and he has said, I didn't knowingly mislead the House of Commons. Yes, he did. And this is the thing Keir Starmer needs to ask and maybe by the time you hear this podcast, some of you, he will have asked it. Who told him that the rules were kept to at all times when he apparently didn't knowingly mislead the House of Commons. Who was this figure? But even if that figure is named, which won't happen, he would still have been aware himself, uh, if he thought about it for a moment, that at the very least, the boundaries were being tested. But he would know more than that. He would know they were being broken to smithereens. So it is astonishing. That minister after minister after minister, dependent on his patronage because they wouldn't be there without him, contrives a defence which I don't think, I'm not wholly sure, but I don't think any other Tory cabinet or Tory parliamentary party would have done. If you think about that cabinet that got rid of Margaret Thatcher in the autumn of 1990, It's hard playing games with time and context. But this weak, puny cabinet, I've got no doubt would have kind of stuck with her. They wouldn't have dared, as a matter of principle, see her and say she's got to go. And, um, you know, that was kind of political decision with Margaret Thatcher. This really should be one of principle. The other depressing thing, which is just beyond anger, is uh, the announcement that they're now, you know, got this plan to send um, refugees to Rwanda. I mean, I kind of laugh because on one level, you could make a sort of dark, dark comedy about it. Uh, There they are saying uh, Johnson's the great war leader leading the resistance against, uh, uh, against Putin. And there he is doing a deal with a Rwandan leader who himself is a kind of dictatorial brute, a subtle dictatorial brute. And uh, to do so, it, it, it's Brexit in another form, isn't it, uh, that Rwanda initiative? It's um, fueling the dislike of foreigners that, is, that was the essence of Brexit. There was and is a sophisticated argument about Brexit, about sovereignty, where power lies, where accountability should lie. And all of that is a very interesting debate and where you get the balance uh, in a sort of world where you are dependent on partnerships and relationships with others. Um, now, that is a good debate to have, but we all know that Brexit was nothing to do with that. Good old Britain, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, and it was kind of and this is where that Rwanda initiative is so sinister. Johnson, number 10, those around him know that the alliance they formed in the December 2019 election is contradictory in many ways. The elderly in the south of England and those red wall voters want different things economically. The elderly in the south of England uh, want their pensions protected, believe in low tax uh, systems loathe regulation, uh, in theory anyway, although when anyone is probed on that issue, you can soon find out they're in favour of regulation, but instinctively they loathe it. Um, And then you have the Red Wall voters wanting economic intervention, uh, big spending on their towns and their wider regions. Um, And how do you reconcile it? You reconcile it by fueling that emotive anger that binds that coalition. It's basically, you know, a kind of uh, English exceptionalism, uh, suspicion of foreigners, a kind of bloody Europe, you know, telling us what to do, we won the war, that kind of sentiment. And appearing to be tough on uh, these migrants, not refugees, migrants, uh, economic migrants on the whole. By cooking up this deal with a dodgy regime, a very expensive deal, it's not going to deter migrants because the elements of desperation uh, are what fuel this. And anyway, Johnson wouldn't have read all the details. It is being done to fuel that dislike, loathing of of foreigners. And it it is so dangerous. But maybe it'll work, you know. I mean maybe – people say uh, voters are never wrong. You know, they are. And in England, they are so easily brainwashed and and the Tories and their newspapers are so clever at framing arguments that appeal to these people. I've talked before about Thatcher and the use of the word freedom. Uh, Who's against Freedom. I don't blame the voters on one level because their alternative has been, you know, for the last 50 years or more, a dysfunctional Labour Party, uh, which has been wholly incapable of framing counter arguments which have that same accessibility. Um, I mean, freedom, they could turn on their heads if they were supple and clever. The the capacity to believe this stuff, it it won't work. It won't happen. Johnson will lose interest in this Rwanda scheme. It's another column. It's a prime minister as a columnist. Uh, It's becoming a cliche to say Trumpian. Um, But I think it's kind of Trumpian plus, plus, plus to quote those Brexiteers. What were were they saying? Some deal would be blah, 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 plus, plus, plus. This is Trumpian plus, plus, plus. Um, Now, you know, lots of people have tweeted – This kind of stuff. And then people have said, yeah, but it works. And if it works, I'm afraid voters have got a lot to answer for. And you get these Vox Pops, you know, the BBC Vox Pops. And they're treated as these revered figures. It's really dangerous. When people don't watch politics, follow politics, reflect about politics, but can just seize these moments. Oh, yeah, at least Johnson is protecting the borders, you know, sending these bastards to Rwanda. And by the way, will it include Ukrainian, uh, uh, you know, people, migrants, or will they be plucked out on some sort of elite list and end up living in Canterbury? You know, it is – anyway, none of it will have been thought through. Uh, You know, Priti Patel who has presided over the bizarrely hopeless uh, scheme for Ukrainian refugees is in charge of this. With Johnson looking on, it's the same kind of – your heart sinks. It's a combination as appalling as Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost – who together, with no scrutiny from the cabinet, Parliament, the Labour Party, negotiated that disastrous Brexit deal, which they themselves now disown. And Frosty, as we know, has just has left and has become, as I knew he would be, uh, a, a, a media commentator. You know, sort of, uh, oh Frosty, God. But now we have another combination: Patel and Johnson. And um, it, it'll all fall apart. It won't happen. But maybe voters are in some places foolish enough to see the headlines. They oh yeah, they're with me, the people's priorities, and we'll fall for it, in which case they've got something to answer for as well. And incidentally, the wider argument about uh, Boris Johnson uh, having such a good war, this great war leader, also needs uh, addressing because it's just not the case. I mean, everyone has explored the failure of the um, uh, refugee scheme. Um, And it's not glamorous. It's not something that will interest him, the details. But for sure, uh, the trip to Kiev and all the rest of it, dressing up really as a soldier with, I mean, that is absolutely up his street. He's being Churchill. He's a performer. And this is his latest performance and, of course, it's the performance he's always yearned to carry out. Uh, His vision of Churchill, which is not the full picture, uh, is what he's wanted to be more than a nursing assistant, a farmer, a policeman, you know, when he dresses up in all those costumes. Um, This is the one. But I think his position is quite dangerous actually. There was one a bit of a report in by Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times uh, when he was talking about the relationship with Sunak. Um, and by the way, on Sunak, uh, I'm really critical of his economic policies. But I think on, on the fine, the poor sod did just walk into that cabinet room for a meeting um, and got caught up in this birthday party. And um, I think he's got cause for a degree of anger about that, but not the rest, not the rest, which he also feels self-pitying about. Um, anyway, back to Johnson, the great war leader. Yeah, he's, th- this is the bit he loves. But the dangerous thing is this. In this Sunday Times Tim Shipman report, buried quite low down was Sunak's view that in the end, in some form or another, Putin will prevail. And that is the kind of context that you have to uh, address the rest of it. Whereas Johnson thinks Putin will lose, in inverted commas. And I'm kind of more with um, Sunak on that as well, in the sense that what does it mean uh, Putin must lose? What Ukraine in its full entity uh, remains as it was before the invasion, and Putin puts his hands up and says, I screwed up and I'm withdrawing and thank you and good night. It's not going to work like that. And I think Johnson, who always takes a sort of heroic view of history and current affairs and wars, um, it means he always misreads it. I remember shortly after the fall of Saddam, you know, after the Iraq, the first phase, we should call it, of the Iraq war. And I was in uh, near Portcullis House where MPs gather for coffee and tea and bumped into Robin Cook. It was in the sort of – we were outdoors somewhere just next to Portcullis House and he was talking through to me what – and he was right about it, how badly it was going to go, that there would be this terrible, terrible civil war and none of it had been thought through. And Boris Johnson joined us. He emerged from some office somewhere as usual in that era on his own, he, he was very much a loner when he was first an MP and uh, he joined in and, I, you know, we were saying, oh, Robin, how very charming and, and uh, with a capacity to engage and a degree of curiosity and Cook uh, summarized his position to Johnson. And George said, oh, I disagree. I disagree. I, uh, 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 Tony's been heroic, heroic. Um, and at that point, with his great leader theory of history, he was very pro Blair um, because you know he he saw it in that sort of Churchillian prism. As incidentally, Blair hoped people in the UK would. It was one of his many many calculations in that period what turned out to be miscalculations in some cases. And it was only much later Johnson made a complete U-turn and described Blair as a war criminal in one of his columns, you know, and should be tried and all the rest of it. But he viewed it through the dangerous, distorting prism of heroic war leadership. And he's now playing that role himself, and I think it's quite dangerous. So, you know, even on the substance of the argument, which doesn't stack up anyway, I mean you can't diminish law-breaking because you'd be doing well at something else if you are doing well and I wonder whether he is. So yeah, um, it, it, England doesn't get angry very often or, or angry enough Um <laughs> Uh, But it really should. Maybe it'll do the opposite and declare, you know, the opinion polls publishing him miles ahead again. Who knows? But it really should get angry more often. Scotland's anger has manifested itself in this desire for independence, fuelled, I think, by England. And on one level, who can blame them um, when they've got a possible route away from this kind of politics in this near one-party state? So their anger manifests itself in that way. Uh, but in England, there's this kind of accept- – oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, the, the kind of – oh, we locked down late and then we didn't lock down in the autumn when everyone said we should have done – oh, yeah, oh, there's a thousand. On we go, you know. Oh, so uh, he was partying, you know, or he broke the law but oh, what a great war leader and, you know, the the kind of passivity of um, parts of England um, is – Yeah depressing. And um, it's partly unquestionably to do with the media. You cannot write a history of England without analysing the impact of the media. Anyway, um, yeah, well, I told you I kind of I I could go on and on, but it's 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 not as interesting, is it really, as trying to make sense of why things are happening in the way they are. So let's now move on to that interesting area, because um, we've got some brilliant questions from all of you. Oh, yeah, I just want to say one other thing before then, because um, I heard a couple of interviews with Jacob Rees-Mogg on, you know, Secretary of State for Brexit benefits or something. Just one of the really interesting facts is that the government was committed. This is all part of the levelling up fantasy, to replace in full the EU funding in areas, the poorer areas of the UK, which benefited from EU funding. Anyway, the EU funding was one and a half billion pounds a year. And it was going to be provided by Brussels until 2024. And uh, the government would dish out 2.6 billion over three years, much less than the EU. And, you know, it is and this This was in areas that all voted to leave. They voted to get less money. And I know they were bombarded by newspapers and a timid BBC and promises of 350 million quid a week for the NHS. But even so, this capacity to vote in ways that will harm you is, um, I kind of, it needs a bloody psychiatrist to make sense of it all. Anyway, sorry, I'm kind of meandering. It'll be back to some form of kind of normality at some point. Not politics. It's going to be bonkers for a long, long time. But anyway, let's have some uh, questions now. A lot of you are bollocking me this week, which is fine because I'm in this cross mood. You know, it just adds to the sense of violence in this podcast. And Val Hudson, who knows much more about health provision than I do, so has written about my argument in favour of some co-payments to fuel funding for the NHS. Val says, I'm going to write, read the nice bit out. I love your podcast, especially listening on Patreon. Thank you. And I love the Rock and Roll Politics live shows. Thank you, Val. And I probably agree with 90% of what you say. Thank you, Val. Now, this next bit. But I fundamentally disagree with your, the views you are expressing on co-payments in the NHS. And that, and that she explains why. But I'll go through them because the NHS has been massively underfunded for the last 12 years. The government is less than truthful about what it is giving the NHS when it claims about new hospitals which aren't new. I completely agree with that, uh, Val. My attempt was to address address the underfunding. But let's move on to the next one. You know that moving from a system that is founded on the principles of universality leads to difficulties in deciding who does and doesn't receive the service, how and who would decide that. That is the challenge with co-payments. Who pays it? Who is excluded? But I kind of think that could be managed and it would be the government that decided, Val. Anyway. Co-payments would be the continuation of the slippery slope to more privatisation of the NHS. I, yeah, I, I can see it might, but I don't see why necessarily it should. It's, it's, it's a way of putting more money into the existing system, which uh, I think we would both agree is already far too fractured and needs bringing together. But I don't think it necessarily should do that. This is an interesting point, of course, which everyone needs to address, not least the government, and they won't. The major cost in the NHS and social care is staffing. COVID, but more especially Brexit, has helped crucify significant pools of staff that um, either may have had in the past. Those that are still there tell us they are stressed and overworked. Agency staff are much, much more expensive to employ, but establishments must have state-safe staffing levels. So I suggest that if we want to get the NHS back on any type of even keel, we all fight to keep it as a universal, free at the point of use service. For a start, we could push the government on the £350 million a week it promised the NHS if people voted for Brexit. Yeah, well, completely. I mean, that was a that was a lie. What I don't quite get, Val, is why co-payments challenge that. I completely agree with you. The staffing is a huge issue. And one of the many dark absurdities of Boris Johnson's Uh, social care plan. That was, of course, another lie. When he became prime minister in July 2019, outside number 10, he said he had a plan for social care. He didn't. Uh, He just put that in because he was worried his whole speech would be about Brexit. Then he found some money, um, which is now going on the NHS, not social care, um, via the national insurance rise, which incidentally won't raise as much as it was originally going to do because they've had to lift the threshold. But they didn't address the structure of social care and where the staff are going to come from and what the standards would be and, and, and the training for the staff. So I, again, completely agree with you. But what I don't quite see is why co-payment should be a challenge to all of that. It, I see it as part of a possible, possible solution, although I understand the practical problems. And on that uh, very front, Uh, An email from uh, Martin Newman. Martin, yeah. Uh, I spend a lot of my time in Brussels. Thank you, Val, by the way, uh, for giving such a forensic uh, counter view and much more informed than mine. Um, But this is uh, what Martin Newman says. I remember this was triggered by Caroline Morgan, who lives partly in Brussels and partly in London. She says the health service in Belgium is much better. And and they use forms of co-payments. Anyway, this is Martin Newman. I spend a lot of time in Brussels and enjoy listening to your podcast while sipping a dark Trappist beer. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a great thing to accompany listening to the Trappist beer. I, I can imagine that on a nice table sitting outside in Brussels with listening to uh, all of this with a Trappist beer. Anyway, Martin writes, it's clear that the NHS question is one of the major issues that the UK needs to address. I can totally endorse the comments made by your correspondent, Caroline Morgan. Yeah, Caroline's kind of our Brussels compare with UK correspondent. Regarding the Belgian healthcare system, mentioned in the podcast, last podcast, what has infuriated me over the years is how in the UK, when discussing alternatives to the NHS, the only possibility which people seem to be aware of is a fully privatised US-style approach, which understandably they find unacceptable. As the Belgium example shows, there are other ways to provide affordable, good quality healthcare. Another aspect to this is that although they cease to make Uh, pension contributions, when they retire, pensioners in Belgium continue to pay health insurance. It seems illogical to me that in the UK, the segment of the population, which makes the biggest demands on the NHS, pays nothing towards it. Um, Yeah, well, they have done in the part, you know, they do sort of, Martin, and a lot of pensioners still pay tax, which goes towards it. Um, But I kind of more on your side than Vals on on this funding issue. Um, And it is you know, this kind of depressing thing that happened in uh, the UK or in England, um, where when the NHS was considered, began with Blair, who said, look, you know, it's reform or anti-reform, you know, if you don't back this, you're anti-reform. It was and and Cameron who copied Blair, uh, just lifted it. And with his absolutely chaotic, anarchic fracturing of the NHS. He put it, this is reform or you're anti-reform. And, of course, all the columnists weighed in, you know, if you're pro-reform, you've got to back this, and anyone who isn't is stuck in 1945. Whereas there are all kinds of routes towards getting the money in to that service and, um, and structuring it in a way that it makes it more accountable, more straightforward and better. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much for another dimension. Enjoy the rest of your pint, uh, Martin, if it is indeed a pint of Trappist beer you are having whilst uh, listening. Uh, Andrew Anderson, one comment, he says, provoked me to respond, and that was Tony Blair telling you how clever he was in imposing a referendum on Scottish devolution. I'm not sure Blair is a reliable witness on his own cleverness. His wizard wheeze was actually to impose a two-question referendum in a fairly transparent bid to sabotage even the relatively limited economic powers of the new parliament you've yeah, forgotten that but there were two questions in the scottish referendum one about the kind of establishment of the scottish parliament but the other about its tax raising powers uh, because another of blair's paranoias was that he would be uh, seen as a tax riser uh, if it wasn't done as a second question and let letting- letting the voters uh, decide. But, um, uh, and, and Andrew goes on to say, one of Blair's less commented upon failings was his centralism, something that increased the neglect of Labour heartlands in the north of England that would later swing to Brexit. I don't think the two are uh, connected there, Andrew. Um, uh, it, you know, the, um, the decision about the Scottish referendum uh, was all about... British general elections. Um, And the point I was trying to make was that in order to, in inverted commas, bomb-proof Labour's 97 manifesto, he looked at all the possible contradictions, all the possible traps uh, that they could fall into in an election campaign, which has completely screwed Labour campaigns in the decades, Uh, fully aware that scrutiny would be 50 times greater than on the Tories and all the rest of it. And that's why he did it. And I think the bomb-proofing is something that every Labour leader needs to do. The the issue of whether there should have been a second question on tax-raising powers is is slightly different, but it was done to bomb-proof a manifesto. And the centralism, here again, is one of the great ironies the centralism, the north of England was a, was a sort of benefit, certainly, for, I mean, Gordon Brown spent half his time working out how to pump money in to the poorer areas of the UK. But to do it stealthily, so the Middle England areas didn't feel that they were losing out. You know, they were big beneficiaries in many cases of that kind of decision-making at the centre, which wouldn't have been able to be done locally because they wouldn't have had the resources. They'd have had to find tons of money from these poorer earning households. So it's it's complicated, this localism versus centralism. Thank you very much for your... uh, Oh, thank you for saying you enjoy the podcast. I'm getting bashed around by a lot of the listeners, but they they do say they like the podcast. So thank you very much, Andrew, and for your other points. I haven't got time to read them all out. Now, here's uh, one that I agree with. Uh, Mark Holstock, who uh, writes from Barna Castle, um, listening to the podcast, one of the contributors um, spoke of the cost of tackling climate change. It doesn't necessarily need to be a cost, but maybe an investment. We spent... A lot of our savings on having solar panels and a Tesla Powerwall battery installed. Yes, it costs quite a bit of money, but as electricity prices rise, the payback time on that investment reduces, as does the amount of the electricity which we have to buy from the national grid. Perhaps a massive public spend on renewable energy should be seen as an investment rather than a cost. Yeah, I I kind of agree, uh, Mark. And, and that is the framing. Uh, investment. Don't say tax burden, you know, and all the rest of it. It's such an obvious investment. And um, I think I've said before that our house, where I live, it, you might as well be in, in a field, in, a, in, in gale force conditions, The how poorly insulated it is. And, and if you put solar panels up, all that kind of stuff, you save money. You save on energy. You deal with the roots of inflation, which is partly a demand problem. As You know, the demand exceeds supply. Prices are going to soar. But if you could deal with the demand, it's an investment. That's how you frame public spending arguments. Um, So, yeah, we're in agreement. And Venetia Kane writes to say that she thinks – Because I said to our French uh, correspondent last week, Dominique Jewell, that I'm quite interested in this French method of electing uh, presidents. We obviously don't have the same system because the first round, everyone can vote for whoever they want, but then they have to Focus in on their least worst, in some cases, and the you know you know it 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 gives voice to a range that the kind of two party in effect two party UK wide system struggles to do. So Venetia Kane, who's a fan of PR, says, "Ah, you're moving closer to." uh, She says France isn't a PR system, but it's closer to one. So she kind of thinks I'm moving there. I'm not sure. She also notes that in France, like Belgium, there are lower waiting lists than here. We And Val's right. It's about underinvestment. But how do we get this investment in, in a country where the media doesn't allow uh, and the Labour Party is too scared because of that to have a grown-up debate about tax and spend? How? How? What is the route to it? Yeah. Oh, and now last week, we had a proposal from, I think, was it... Um, Uh, Stuart, who's who's made for me uh, the uh, Union Jack socks, Um, we're going to meet. I'm going to take a photo of the presentation. Modelling myself on Lord Frosty Frost, I'm going to be wearing Union Jack socks Uh, because I've got three pairs coming my way. But anyway, uh, I think he or somebody suggested that we should all form a cooperative because we've got the bread makers, the runners who can provide the delivery service and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah, Venetia says, can I be chief beanie knitter to your rock and roll politics cooperative? We could then all wear beanies to keep ourselves warm when we go out demonstrating for PR. Well, I'm up for definitely your first part of the offer. Demonstrating for PR, I'm not there yet, um, Venetia, but I think quite a few would join you on that. So there we are. We're sorted. We've got clothing, bread. Uh, we're going to make a fortune. We're going to be the John Lewis of our day. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, now, Mark Lochran, uh, who writes from uh, Northern Ireland, and he was talking about uh, one of several things, actually, uh, BBC political reporting. and He says, my own observation of recent BBC political reporting and interviewing is that they now appear to want to avoid contextualisation at all costs. An honourable exception is Ross Atkins, who is predictably buried on BBC News 24. Yeah, this is... I think and th- th- the issue really uh, – I-, I won't go on about it because I-, I did it a bit, uh, quite a bit last week um, and I see they've now appointed Chris Mason as political editor. What a long, circuitous route as, um, you know, as I said, the macho wing of the BBC Ah, oh, We've got to get someone who gets us exclusive scoops. You know, we've got a ITA and got a screw Sky. Uh, it's so simplistic and naive and shallow. And the key role is to provide context. Um, There are other things, as uh, Mark observed. Let these interviews breathe. You know, if if they're only given a short duration, you're going to interrupt and nothing's going to develop. Um, But context is, is the key because that explains why things happen. You know, nothing happens by chance. You can do that impartially. You know, those of us outside the staff of the BBC can do it in other ways as well. We can express views. Some of you will agree. Some of you will disagree. But in that, light is shed on why things happen. But if you just present them as one damn thing after another, which has been the tendency in the recent past, um, without weighing up. Significance and where they came from, and uh, you know the sources and the value of some sources. You didn't ditch sources in inverted commas. Those who brief you privately, absolutely crucial part of political reporting, but you have to weigh up uh, motive and significance and stuff, and that's what it's all about. And it's not it's not there at the moment very much, um, and some of those who might have provided that kind of uh, context have have gone, but. Um, yeah, uh, it needs some absolutely clear, deep thinking from a more streamlined kind of management. Um, uh, and and if not, I think they're going to get into even more trouble. Uh, but good luck to uh, Chris Mason. Let's see about capacity explanation, etc. Okay, thank you for that. And now let's uh, go on to um, James Munro. Do you think Keir Starmer being a knight counts against him and his electoral chances? Uh, The sometimes simplistic view of voters may mean this. God, we're slaggy off voters in this podcast. Deservedly so. Uh, There's no doubt he earned his knighthood by working hard and achieving a great amount, unlike Gavin Williamson, also arguably competent, given he is also seen as uncharismatic and boring. Does that lower his electoral chances too? It's interesting. This uh, I know. Boris Johnson, uh, Sakia, uh, listening to the lawyer, Remainer. But if he projects himself um, as an authoritative alternative prime minister with radical verve and vision and excitement, it shouldn't be. But if he just becomes a spokesperson for focus groups and um, paralyzed by the findings of focus groups and uh, doesn't kind of develop that kind of verve, what Boris Johnson, if it is him, plans to do is to turn the whole trust thing on his head. He wanted to block the referendum, back Corbyn, pledges in a leadership contest, and then it will become a sort of, oh, yeah, do anything. He got knighthood and all the rest of it. But... The alternative is most Labour leaders of the opposition are killed off by uh, the media and effective Tory campaigning as just lacking the weightiness to be a prime minister. That's how they destroyed Neil Kinnock and Ed Miliband and so on. You, you know, so in that sense, it, it adds perhaps to the, the weightiness, but it's not a big thing, to be honest, but it, but it could go either way depending on projection, his projection. Okay, uh, Will Baldwin in Birmingham, could former Labour politicians who left the stage prematurely like Ed Balls, David Miliband or Alan Johnson be persuaded to return? Your reference to Balls on a recent podcast made me think how much his stock rose because of Strictly. Johnson's populist ascent is traced by uh, some back to have I got news for you. Uh, My reaction was, who's that twat? But apparently others liked him. Uh, excellent show by the way oh thank you will from birmingham uh no uh, they can't return um you know there's a sort of i think ed balls would love to go back he would give up you know he's now a national celebrity it's a fascinating story his one deeply unpopular as he worked 20 hours a day to try and raise money for the nhs uh he does one dance badly on bbc one peak time saturday night and he's a star and everyone loves him but the roots back are not there alan johnson wouldn't want to come back he's having he likes writing his books and he's done it um and returns never work really interesting example is michael portillo who um came back having lost his seat famously in 1997 and william haig the then leader was paranoid god portillo will make a move against me but he was never comfortable returning. He was made Shadow Chancellor almost immediately and was conveyed his deep unease. Uh, so there is no route back uh, when you leave in any kind of significant way. Uh, funnily enough, even those who appeared to have carved a remarkable route back, like Roy Jenkins who left to go to Europe, and then came back as leader of the SDP and won a by election triumphantly uh, to do so. But it's never it never quite works the second time. OK, and, um, oh, yeah, Alex Hyde, right? I just thought I'd get in touch about a general election suggestion. Uh, one election that I keep thinking about is 2005. As a Labour supporter, I keep coming back to this one and find it fascinating. I think this is largely due to the fact that it's Labour's most recent general election victory. Yeah, you've got to go a long way back for Labour victories. For that reason alone, I think it deserves far more attention than it's received in recent years. Um Okay. Yeah. Well, I they in different ways. You know, these elections are all fascinating. They tell us something about obviously the country and and the parties and the past. Again, they only make sense if you contextualise them. To use the term, one of my other favourite terms, along with consequences, um, and, and the BBC could could do so much on that area because you can do it impartially, contextualisation. Um, uh, and it is an interesting election. It was a very kind of dark one. It was after the war in Iraq. And I remember seeing Blair uh, going on a train journey with him and interviewing him. And immigration was a huge issue in that election. Michael Howard had whipped it up. I mean, Michael Howard had far more integrity than... Uh, Boris Johnson, but he 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 his opening speech in the election was about immigration, and I remember Blair saying to me, oh, "You know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's just so ugly." this election. Um, but they had to counter it. They had to, um, to sort. You know, the, it's the it's the dilemma that Johnson is trying to propose with his Rwanda scheme, which won't happen in any practical form. But you know, he he hopes Labour. Will suffer by exposing its its dangerous absurdity. Um, so it was a weird election, but Labour got a decent majority. The the vote was much lower, but it still got a decent majority. Interestingly, England a majority of voters voted Tory in that election, even though the Tory campaign was frankly a shambles. And Michael. Howard wasn't really equipped for the job. I did it much better than Ian Duncan Smith. You're right, actually. I'm talking my way through into doing it. I, I will announce next week uh, the your next bonus podcast if you sign up to the Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. It will be another election. You can do one more, then going can do something else, and then go back to them. Um, I'll announce it. it. won't be 2005, but I've, I've begun the 2005 one. And and you're right. and And, and The 2001 is also overlooked when Labour won another landslide. Um, And in a way, they should become more interesting given Labour's capacity to lose elections. Um, So, um, yeah. Good ideas. Thank you all so much. Uh, oh, Alex is going to come down to a King's Play show soon. Great. Yeah. Uh, more on that and other shows actually uh, after Easter. I'll make some announcements uh, soon after Easter. As you'll, some of you will be listening to this after Easter. Anyway, look, thank you very much. This is the angry special. Um, I'm not getting too angry because it's just boring. If I really articulated what I felt, you'd all just, oh, just shut up, mate. Um, so anyway, have a great time if you are away or if you're back. Um, and let's all get together next week to make sense of it all. If you could leave a review, but only only rave reviews, please. Even if you disagree with me, just say, oh, yeah, but oh, it's fantastic. Anyway, look, thank you so much. Have a great time in spite of all that's going on. And let's get together to make sense of it all next week. Thank you.